Hi, I'm Jeff Madoff, and today on Curiosity Bites with Doug Barron, we're going to talk about what I do. And what I do is I'm the author of Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And I am a professor at Parsons School for Design, where I interview lots of really interesting people that contributed to the book. I am a playwright. I have a play that's premiering in May called Personality, the Lloyd Price musical. And I am the CEO of Madoff Productions, not a coincidence, same last name as mine. And I do commercials, documentaries, and so on for people like Ralph Lauren, companies like Victoria's Secret, Harvard School of Public Health, American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So we're going to talk about creativity and how editing is the real secret to doing great creative work about creativity, collaboration, and trust, and how to work with people in a way that really enhances and make your work, makes your work a lot better. So I'm really looking forward to my conversation with Doug because as you regular listeners know, he is an interesting guy and a lot of fun to talk to. So please stay tuned and hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to part three of my interview with Jeffrey Madoff. And I want to remind you that this particular episode is co-sponsored by the theawesomemusicproject.com, where it's connecting music, science, and story to enhance mental health. You can find out more about The Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Jeffrey Madoff. He is the author of uh, creative, creative Careers, Making a Living from Your Ideas. He's also the CEO and founder of Madoff Productions, um, in New York City. This is an amazing conversation. We're going into some pretty cool stuff. And one of the things we were talking about at the end of the last one was about this music legend that Jeff's designed, uh, created a play around. Uh, this guy broke every possible understanding of, of racing records and record sales and, and shows really that he wasn't a victim. Uh, or any of the things that we we like to shove things in boxes about. Let, let's go back into that for a minute because I want to talk about, first thing I want to know is how did you come across that story? Because it's pretty obscure. You know, again, as I told you, I was talking with Victor Wooten, that name never came up. Um, but the connections to Fats Domino and Little Richard – and the music business, and then all the other things he did as an entrepreneur, fascinating. How did you come across this story? So a uh, man that I became friends with, uh, John Banani. John was a, the executive producer for Radio City Music Hall. And I was hired to create a film for the 75th anniversary of Radio City. Uh, it was supposed to run for one year as part of the Christmas Spectacular, their, you know, their famous, iconic Christmas Spectacular, and uh, ended up running for seven years. I wish wow. I had gotten royalties, but I didn't. But yeah. it was We're back on that subject. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I love shooting at Radio City and working with the Rockettes. It was a total, total blast. John... Uh, called me because we became friends as a result of working together. And uh, he said, I've got somebody I want you to meet. Can I bring him by your office? We're both in the city. 
And I said, sure, who is it? And he said, uh, you ever hear of Lloyd Price? I said, yeah. You know, because Lloyd's biggest song was personality. So even if you don't know his name or you can't quite associate it, it's because uh, you've got walk a personality, talk, talk a personality, pile a personality, charm. So it's a great song that sold so many millions of copies and it was covered by so many people. I was going to say, but it, it wasn't made famous by him at all, right? Oh, it was. Yeah, it was, was it? actually. Yeah, yeah. Who do, who do I know it by? Well, you actually, being from England, might know it by Anthony Newley. Yes, exactly. And, Anthony that's right. Newley. Oh, my yes. God. That's a name I haven't heard in about 10,000 years. <laughs> you're right. But that's what you're thinking of. He had a big hit with it, too. He did. Uh, yeah. So uh, when I met Lloyd, he's, got, he's very charismatic. And uh, what John wanted me to do was a short documentary about Lloyd because they wanted to generate interest in his story. So I researched him because I only knew some of his music, but I did not know anything about him as a person. So I did some research and then I interviewed Lloyd uh, while we shot this short documentary. And I was so fascinated by his story that I said to him, I know I can capture your voice. I want to tell your story. Wow. And uh, I wrote the first few scenes and read it to Lloyd and he loved it. And that's what started everything. And that I, so I learned the story directly from the source, which is yeah, fabulous. But you, you were, I mean, even they brought you in because of film. Yes. But why a play? Why not a, why not a film? Why not a, uh, a biography? Why not a documentary? Why, a, so, why a play? I hope to do all of those by the way, mm -hmm. but, uh, the reason a play is because I felt that a play would uh, create such a vibe in person. Mm. And for me, there is nothing as exciting and dynamic as a great live performance. So if you see your favorite music group live, or you see your favorite comedian live, or you see theater live, there's nothing like it. And I wanted to convey that raw energy, just like our Roop experience when he went into the gospel churches and the music would start. So I wanted to get that feeling, that visceral feeling about Lloyd and his life. So, you know, we did, uh, we did what's called a 29 hour back in 2018 which meant that we had the actors and they basically read from the script standing at music stands. Right. But we had an audience there and yeah, yeah. Because the idea of all this starting a play is just like starting any startup. Right. You know, you've got to raise some money to get things going. You got to establish proof of concept. Then you need to go to cross another threshold, which means you have to raise more money. And so it's constantly all of that. I'm the producer by default, because when I started at this, I didn't know anybody in theater and nobody had ever heard of me. But I was able to get through doors. And when I got people, when I was successful getting people to read the script, fortunately they responded. And then I would meet other people. And so I finally built up this network of connections in theater. And when people then saw our workshop, which happened 
in the end of March in 19. Uh, and that was full up with choreography, seven piece band and all of that. No sets, no wow. props or costumes, but everything else. And uh, we were packed both nights with theater professionals. And really? yeah, and uh, we raised more money and then we got a deal with the theater and that's why we're scheduled to uh, open in May of 2021. Uh, 20, so it's a long journey. In order, in long order journey, to... and it's a very collaborative journey. But you know, I mean, it is the—it's the focus of your book, right? Which is creating a career based on your your ideas, on your creative outlets. You know, and you've obviously explored so many of those for yourself. You know, with film, and it's interesting to me that. Um, when I look at the book and I look at the interviews you've done, you have done interviews with people who are very famous from the, 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 the fashion world and creativity that we would think of, we would normally put into that space. But you've also got people in there like um, Dory, my friend Dory Clark is in there and she, you know, love Dory to bits. Um, you know, she's not a theater person. She's, you know, she's a very, very smart entrepreneur and you've got Damon John and people like that. So, and, and of course, Damon, people don't know this about him, but the design side of it and all the stuff he did because uh, Keith Perrin, who's his partner, is also somebody I know. It's also been on one of my other shows. And we talked about that design and the idea of just putting shit in the car and taking it out and selling Fu it. You're talking about FUBU. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about FUBU. Right. right. So it's interesting to me that, Again, we're at this piece around what is an artist and this somehow this magnificent creature that is created that is the artist and the entrepreneur. And, and that seems to be very much the focus of the book. Was it that is. the focus? You in, uh, I guess my question is, was that the intentional focus of the interviews? Well, the focus of the interviews was really how did they come to do what they are doing? Mm -hmm. uh, what obstacles did they have to overcome? What is their creative process that they employed? Uh, and, you know, doing a deep dive into how they got to where they are and all the ruts along the way and all the triumphs along the way and insights that you can gain. And one thing that's clear is there's no one way. Right. And, and so with the book, uh, I, I have a, an aversion to prescriptive behavior that if, if you follow these seven steps, you'll be as successful as these seven billionaires. It's horseshit. It's not it how it works. You can't, that's what I call the myth of replication. Mm. You cannot do what you think somebody else did and be successful beyond best practices, which is show up, be prepared, be ready and work your ass off. And then everything else is nuance and who you happen to meet and when you happen to meet them and all of that. But what, what, I, what I wanted to address that we started to go into is, you know, it's one of the things that I learned that I think is so important. And if, you're, if your listeners can take this away, uh, I think it'll, it'll be very helpful. When I said earlier that everything you do informs everything else you do. Mm-hmm. So I had never designed clothes before, but I had an idea. I sketched the idea onto paper. 
Uh, I had somebody make a sample, uh, had to cost out how much fabric, how much labor, how long would it take, what can I charge for it, all of that sort of thing, right? So jump to doing film. I'm doing commercials and documentaries and things like that. And I have an idea and I have to write down the idea. I have to storyboard the idea. I have to know what the labor costs are. What are the material costs? When can we deliver this by? How, how much can we sell it for? Is it worth doing? Because I'm able to make more than I can, uh, than I spent on it. So there's a profit. Uh, go to film, go to theater. It's the same thing again. You know, how many actors, how much does it cost? What is the time and materials? It all started with an idea and putting that idea down on paper, then communicating that idea clearly to others and then breaking down all the component parts, the labor, the materials, the time and all of that and figuring out what it would cost to do it. Because how else would I even know how much to raise? So I believe the basic protocols in any business, creative or not, are the same. If you're going to open up an accounting office, you need to know how much, how many square feet do you need to house how many people, and then how much do they have to bring in in order to pay the overhead, the phone, the, everything else. It's all the same. Those well, was that natural to you, Jeffrey? Again, you know, uh, coming back, you, you know, your psychology, philosophy, wrestling, um, you know, uh, fashion. You know, what was that? Because that's very, I don't like the terms left brain, right brain, but it's, you know, it's more considered to be more in the logical, logistical side of, uh, you know, and, and less on the creative side. You know, it seems like you were quite methodical and understanding about those things. So two things, and one of the things I'm going to rock your world. Uh, but the first thing is that, my parents, who were both entrepreneurs, and my sister is an entrepreneur. She's a retailer, and my parents were retailers. So I would work in the store when I was a kid, and I was aware of the difference between the wholesale price, what my parents paid, and the retail price, what the public paid who, buy this, who bought the stuff. Right. I was aware of how my parents, because I just listened to their conversations, how they would establish their open to buy, how they would budget for the season, the rent on the stores, the people that they had working for them, all of that. So I think by osmosis, I was around that. And a business acumen from that. Yes, that's right. You know, so I learned business of the business. I had a paper route when I was a kid. So I knew that the paper cost me, you know, three cents, sold it for five cents, had to deliver at a particular time, and that's how I made money. And even the odd jobs I had growing up you know, you had to put a value on yourself. How much can I get for shoveling their lawn or, or mowing, uh, shoveling their driveway or mowing their lawn? Uh, so, you know, all businesses have a lot of the same questions going on. So it did come to me because I grew up in an environment where that was discussed. And so I was, my parents were very open with my sister and myself. And, you know, we, so we learned things from that and were exposed to it. But it was interesting when you said left brain, right brain. Uh, because Which I don't believe by the way, but okay. Well, so you can go online and you, you can, uh, find all kinds of books, quizzes. Are you left brain, right brain, right brain being, you know, the more creative and the left brain being more, uh, you know, 
about logic and structure. Uh, and the interesting thing is that that really stuck. And Roger Sperry, who was a neuropsychologist, developed and did the split brain studies uh, in the 60s and 70s. And then as a culmination of his work, he won the Nobel Prize for split brain studies. Right. A few years later, what was discovered once there was sophisticated brain mapping available is in fact, both hemispheres of the brain, there's crosstalk going on all the time. And so the idea of this happens in the left lobe and this happens in the right lobe actually isn't the case. No. And if you took the brain and looked at a brain of, of uh, an accountant and you looked at a brain of Rembrandt, you wouldn't be able to tell anything from the activity in the brain. Mm -hmm. But people not only define themselves by that to this day, yep. Uh, but the interesting thing is that creative people will say, well, you know, I don't have a head for business, I, you know, but I'm very creative. And business people will say, well, I'm not creative, but I know business. And in fact, they're placing these limits on themselves or rationalizing about not doing something they'd rather not do. I don't find the business of the business interesting, but it's a survival skill. Right. Yeah. And, and that sort of seg segues over to some of the interviews because, you know, you've got, like I said, you've got people like Damon John and Dory Clark and these famous fashion designers, but you also interviewed people from the neuroscience world. You've interviewed mm -hmm. uh, a couple of neuroscientists that I saw in there. Moran Cerf and, and John yeah. Levy. Yes. And John Levy. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've actually followed some of their work. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, were you, were you consciously aware of choosing to bring them in? What, what, yes. You know, what was the, I mean, cause that again, doesn't seem to fit. You know, one of the things I love about you, by the way, is that you do shit that doesn't fit. And that for me is, is like, that's what I'm all about is like, yeah, this doesn't fit. Let's do it. Because it's, I think that the greatest trap in our business and our creativity is to say, this is the way it's done. Well, you know, as Richard Branson, it isn't the way to be done. He, right. he, everything he did, he did some other way. And that's why he's successful. And I love that about you. You, you approach things in a way that is certainly not conventional. And that's what I like. So, so talk to us about bringing in the, the neuroscientists. So fundamentally what I'm about in the class is the exchange and sharing of ideas. And that I figured, you know, at Parsons, these students get enough fashion in the other courses that they're taking. Those are on the fashion track. And I actually just uh, as of a couple of years ago, got my uh, course open to the entire new school, which was great. And so I wanted to do things that would make them think and uh, employ and engage their critical thinking skills. About 15 years ago, I read a book called Heuristics and Biases. And that was by uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And they actually, uh, Kahneman or Tversky had died and Kahneman, I think in 2005 or six, won the Nobel Prize because they don't award them posthumously. Mm. So it was for their, the studies they did together. 
And the heuristics is how your brain processes information and biases are the lenses through which we view things. And so they pioneered a field that was called behavioral economics. Yep. And a lot of behavioral economics has to do with how do we make decisions? And when I read their book, it was so fascinating and made me think in ways that I had not thought before. Uh, and it's just was brilliant. So that started me on the path of reading lots of books about cognitive neuroscience. So one of the things, for instance, that Moran talks about in terms of how we make decisions and how we can be manipulated into making decisions. And so there are all these interesting studies and I thought, okay, so he talks about how wine bottles are displayed and how it gets you to spend more than you were going to spend in buying wine. And you can apply that to anything that you go buy. But I wanted to get into how we make decisions, what affects our decision-making because we as individuals are not nearly, oh, sorry about that. I thought this was off. Uh, we as individuals are not logical. Uh, we're not logical at all. And, yeah. but we think we are. Well, we tell ourselves rational lies. That's correct. About our emotional decisions. That's, that's why we correct. call them rationalized. That, that's right. You're right. For good, good play on words there. That's right. So I thought having them in class would introduce new insights and new things to think about. So that's why I had uh, cognitive neuroscientists into classes. Uh, and I've had, you know, I've got an astronomer who's going to be one of my guests uh, this semester. Uh, why? Why Emily are Because when we look at the, here's one of the things that blew my mind when I was a little kid. And actually, uh, at the beginning of my book, I talk about my neighbor who wanted me to look through his telescope and said, do you see Orion? Mm -hmm. And uh, so who hasn't looked at the vastness of space and stars and been kind of amazed by it? Right. But then I remember when I heard that, you know, we're looking at, and I don't remember the exact number, but we're looking at a sky that that's how it looked 400 million years ago, because from the outer reaches of the galaxy, that's how long it took the light to get to us. Yeah. And then that blew my mind just thinking about, wow. So we're not even seeing what we think we're seeing. No, we're seeing and ancient history. That's correct. That's right. And that's exciting to me. And so I want to open the students' minds to thinking about, you can't trust what you see. You have to understand context. You look at a map and you see the Big Dipper and you see Orion and Cassiopeia's chair. But in other parts of the world, the constellations mean something entirely different. To Native Americans, they mean something entirely different. Uh, so there's there's all of these mythologies that tie into science and astronomy is an incredibly creative field because they're having to think about things that didn't exist that may not exist now although we're seeing them in there from 400 million years ago i mean it's crazy so yeah. i just i i just think that things that can take you out of your way of thinking and introduce you to new worlds can possibly influence or affect not only how you view the world, but how you view your work. So I think it's just cool. It's very, very interesting. I, I find that particularly fascinating what you were just saying there. Uh, 
because so much of i mean let's talk about that that bias piece which i think is is the thing that we're all faced with dealing with on a daily basis that we look at the world through a set of, of filters right. and biases about the way things are and the analogy I use all the time is completely politically incorrect, but I'm still going to use it because it makes the best example. And that is, if we go back to the 1930s in the south of the United States, and we find a white guy in the street and we say, well, tell me about that guy over there. And we point out to somebody who is a native, uh, who, is a, who is an African-American, and he completely is derogatory about that person. And he says, you know, He's a monkey and he says horrible things and that devalue that human being. And then I say to the person I'm time traveling with, is he a racist? And he says, yeah. And I say, no, he's not. And they go, what do you mean? No, he's not. He's living inside a world where that's a reality. It's a bias that's got nothing to do with him because he likely never thought about it in any other way. Mm -hmm. So it's only a bias um, if it's, I, it's either ignorance or bias. And unfortunately, most people have the two things glued together. So his ignorance is his bias, but they can be separated. He can have an awareness and then choose not to have a bias, or he can have an awareness and still choose to have a bias. That's okay, but it's like we don't do that. We're not, we don't open to the complexities of understanding around our bias. And so we want to shove people in a box. And that's where we started out right at the beginning of the show is like, I can dis I can agree with a political person who I completely disagree with on everything. And that doesn't make me uh, crazy. It makes me open-minded and vice versa. I can disagree as you know, you and I talked about in a previous conversation, it is patriotic to disagree with your government right. because in a democratic society, that's what it means they are put in place in power by you and your opinion should matter and you should be able to say it. So when Noam Chomsky went to court and defended a neo-Nazi and is right to speak out, I thought that was amazing. Noam Chomsky was a Jew who said he should be allowed to say these things. Does he agree with them? No. Does he think he's right? The fact that he was a Holocaust denier? No, but he has that right. And if we don't, be careful around these biases, we will end up in a dystopian Orwellian world of thought police. And I'm, that's what bothers me that, you know, when I asked you, uh, what are you curious about? And you said, where we're going, that's one of the sort of negative curiosities for me is like, Jesus, are we going down that road? The bias piece is, is powerful. And so I love that you're, bringing that to a world of like, you know, fashion and, and design and artsy world. And you're bringing them things like astronomy and neuroscience. That's awesome. Well, I think what you're talking about, and I think everything has to do with context. It does. And if you don't put things into context, whether it's the context of the times, that doesn't mean that it was morally right but it does mean that in those times, can you hold somebody accountable by the same standards that we are operating by today? 
And I think it gets to be a very complex question and an uncomfortable issue to talk about for many people, but it's important to understand it. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the idea of context, there's a book called The Context of No Context by George S. Trow, which is absolutely fascinating. It's only like 95 pages, but it's an amazing book and gets you thinking about context. I mean, it, it gets me where uh, you can be watching a promo for the news and the, the news can be, you know, an explosion in Lebanon, 5,000 people injured, over 300 people killed, and the Cavaliers are back on the basketball court this evening. And it's like, what? Yeah, exactly. You know, the context makes absolutely no sense. Uh, you know, can we hold people accountable for behaviors that by today's standards are horrible? Because hopefully we have grown. Uh, and but at that time, it was more the norm. Now, there were also people who were counter to that norm, who I have tremendous respect for, because they didn't care what the norms were. Norms were awful. They didn't care. And they were able, over time, effort, uh, to bring about changes. But, you know, they had to bring about changes because the context of the times was very different. Yes. And uh, when I was a kid, just to bring it into context, when I was a kid, <laughs> I remember being in history class. And I think as I don't remember fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, Columbus discovered America. <laughs> and I said, and I said, to the teacher, wait, wait a minute. Do you have a problem, Jeff? I said, yeah, I do. What's the problem? How did he discover something when people were already here? That would be like me going into your backyard and discovering your patio furniture and taking it home. I discovered this. What do you mean discovered? It's mine. What are you talking about? And so, you know, we were brought up from a very young age that reinforces certain biases. And because, as you said, most people don't think about it, those things continue. And so it, it's that's what woke me up just thinking about Columbus because I'm thinking how could he have discovered this when all these people were already living here? Yeah, the hell I does did, that mean? I, did, uh, I wrote an article years ago, probably somewhere online, uh, um, about uh, Happy Holocaust Day, is what I called it. It was Columbus Day, and I said, you know, you if you go to and this is before all this political correct stuff was out. So if you go to Germany, you don't find uh, statues of Adolf Hitler. Right. Um, you know, um, you go to Poland, you don't find statues of Adolf Hitler. So why the hell is statues of Columbus here? Um, because those people were genocidal maniacs. And so was Columbus. I mean, they were, you know, we're talking today about sex slavery and child slavery. You know, Columbus was right at the top of that list. You know, he was he was busy having sex with kids and shipping them back to the to the, to the royal courts for a bit of uh, hanky panky. And you held this guy as a hero. Like, my God, it's insane. But again, the context is history. So, mm -hmm. in that context, nothing wrong with it. In that context, in that time, in this context, terrible. 
but we don't have to heroize and we maybe need to re-examine. And I think that that's the problem is we judge, we don't re-examine. So this is the other side of it. You've got one side saying, well, let's keep our Confederate statues. It's our history. Yeah, not so much. Um, on the other side, you know, uh, you've got like tear down every statue. You know, in Britain, some guys are trying to tear down Winston Churchill. Now, I know Winnie Churchill's, you know, I'm a kid when Winnie, was, when Winnie died. I remember that. Um, and I remember that he turned the Jews away who were trying to escape Germany. I know that. And he wasn't particularly fond of Jewish people. I also know that. Um, there's a context to the time. There's a context to the time. And I love that you're bringing that up because I think that that is one of the greatest mistakes of political correctness is context to time. If you follow, if you're, if you're imposing the morality of today on yesterday, nobody gets away scot-free. And the person who's screaming the loudest about it is the one who probably needs to shut the heck up because we might start digging into your past. Unless, of course, you're 17 and you're a keyboard warrior and you never left your mom's basement. That's a whole different gig. <laughs> so we've come to the end of part three and we're going to move into part four and we're going to get into, we're going to get into more around creativity. We're going to get into more about your, your favorite interviews that you've done on some of your learnings and what you've really gained. We'll come back in the next section with that. Hope you'll stay with us and I hope that you've really been enjoying this totally binge worthy episode of Curiosity Bites. We'll be back in a few. See you on the other side. <laughs>